Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel, and I'm here with politician and writer Tanya Flubasek to talk about her book uh, that she edited, Upturn. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you, Joel. Uh, this is a fascinating book. Um, you've collected some of the greatest um, progressive thinkers in the country to write this sort of um, I don't know how you would describe it. Do you, do you do you have a way of describing it yet, or is and I'm sure what point in the arc of publicity you're at? <laughs> oh, well, uh, I, I suppose I would describe it as a set of ideas about how we can build a stronger economy and a fairer society after COVID nineteen. That's a pretty long description, isn't it? Um, but maybe it's a, a manual for new success for the country. Mm, a manual sounds right. It feels it feels very much like you've taken this thing that is primarily seen as a total negative and uh, put an optimistic spin on it and tried to see what we can achieve as a nation uh, in response to it. Um, COVID has been really horrific for so many people. Obviously, people who've lost a family member, who've been sick themselves, who've lost a job, uh, seen their business closed down. I don't want to underplay the fact that this has been a, a huge negative experience for millions of people. But at, at every point in Australian history where we've had these big crises, like the Great Depression, the Second World War, there's been a period of reconstruction afterwards. And I think um, shaping the reconstruction is really what I'm um, trying to do here. Australians achieved so much during the pandemic. We were very responsible for the most part about social distancing and all of the things that we were asked to do by the health authorities to keep ourselves safe, but also to keep one another safe. And I really wanted to take that spirit of cooperation and responsibility and self-sacrifice and say, well, what comes next? How do we repay the um, really, you know, terrific investment that Australians have made in keeping one another safe? How do we repay that with a fairer and more prosperous future? Yes, and it sort of um, stems from the idea that... Um, I think a lot of us thought before the pandemic, but um, but it's sort of been overshadowed by the pandemic, that actually Australia wasn't necessarily in the best position um, that we could have been before this all started. But certainly from a, from a position of the climate and, uh, you know, equality. Um, can you speak a little bit about where, like, where you thought we were at before this happened? Yeah, we had some really serious problems before COVID-19. We had uh, high rates of unemployment, high rates of underemployment, stagnant wages growth, increasing inequality, uh, low productivity growth in business. Um, you identified one of our uh, biggest issues, climate change. We've been paralysed uh, for, I think it's fair to say, um, close to two decades now when it comes to climate and energy policy. Uh, we saw, um, yes, some great uh, advances like the introduction of the National Disability Insurance Scheme when Labor was last in government, the National Apology and so on. But uh, I wasn't content with the direction that the country was heading in. And what, what COVID-19 taught us is that 
all these things that seemed impossible, like kids moving virtually online, uh, overnight to online learning with uh, housing homeless people uh, and, you know, um, rent reductions and, uh, you know, banks behaving responsibly towards people who are struggling. All of these things that seemed impossible, we managed to do almost overnight. I mean, even getting people to stay home from the pub and the beach, which you, if you had asked Australians a year ago, you know, could the government, if they asked you very nicely, convince you to stay home from the pub and the beach? Most people would say not on your life. But we managed to do it. And I, I think having achieved so much, um, the, these, these other challenges as you quite rightly say, many of them pre-existing COVID-19, they cannot be beyond us. Like, how do we make sure that we have great jobs that are secure with decent pay for more Australians? How do we look after people who can't work uh, with generosity and compassion instead of pushing them further and further into poverty? How do we address this fundamental economic and environmental issue of uh, energy and climate change policy. How do we do all these things? Well, we've got this huge group of super clever people who've been thinking about this and active for years who have great ideas for how we do it. And I feel like what, I, well, what I've tried to do is bring them together to talk about how, how we proceed. One of the incredible things about being a member of parliament is if someone writes an interesting article in the newspaper or you hear them on the radio or you read a book they've written and you, you can actually, as a Member of Parliament, be a little bit bold and ring them and say, I really liked what I heard you saying about this idea. Can you explain it to me? Here are some questions I have. And what I really wanted to do was take that privilege of my job, that incredible privilege of my job, and share it with more people. So I, I went to um, people that I find interesting and challenging. Uh, some of them have been writing in this area for a long time. Some of them had just, you know, said something in passing. Um, and some of them, frankly, um, I didn't know before the book, like uh, Lachlan Beale, for example, is a young apprentice in there uh, that, um, you know, his union put me in contact with him when he lost his apprenticeship. I went to these people and said, how can we do better as we come out of this crisis? And people were phenomenally generous in sharing their ideas. Um, and that's that's what this book's about. Yeah. So the, the experience of pulling all of that together, was that uh, a long process or did it, it must have happened fairly quickly given that we've only been in lockdown for less than a year? <laughs> Yeah, in publishing terms, I, I come from a publishing background. That's very, very fast. <laughs> it it took um it took a lot a lot more hours than I anticipated. Uh, I had very um, great advice and support from New South, the publishers, um, but it was a, a bigger project um, than I had originally imagined. But you know, hell, I, I had to do something on the Saturday nights of lockdown, so. <laughs> It, that's how the book was born. Oh man, you're one of those people who who, who does things during lockdown. <laughs> I got a bit stir crazy if I didn't have a, a new project. I think. 
Fair, fair enough. And um, at what point in the process of pulling the book together did the second lockdown happen with Melbourne and Victoria? Did that, um, did that play into the narrative that you were building? Um, the, the book was almost done. Like most people had uh, finalised their chapters by the time we saw the, the second spike in Melbourne. But I, I did try and, I mean, the book is obviously a little bit about how we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and future pandemics. So I've got um, some really interesting uh, health writers in there, Paul Torzillo, uh, who's a, a specialist here uh, in Sydney, um, and uh, and also, of course, Sharon Lewin, who um, is in Melbourne and is an internationally uh, renowned um, person who uh, has worked on HIV and AIDS originally, but more broadly in other pandemics as well. So we did have a look at some of the, the health elements of how we could deal, uh, make the health system stronger and deal with future pandemics. But, but really most of the book is not about that. Most of the book is really focused on what kind of economy, what kind of jobs and what kind of, um, what kind of a social safety net uh, we need for the country. There's quite a bit in there, of course, uh, also about the energy uh, future that we need for Australia and, in, and greater investment in renewables. Um, I look at the environment. Peter Garrett has written for me on the environment. Ross Garner has written for me on climate change and energy. Um, but also at, um, you know, foreign affairs, we've got Gareth Evans, uh, we've got Greg Combe writing about superannuation, uh, a bunch of economists writing about you know, tax and productivity in the economy. Um, and I've also got people like um, Annabelle Crabb and Professor Rachel Cooper writing about gender relations, working from home, the way that families uh, have divided the la their labour at this time, how we can do better and fairer in... in um, you know, in, in areas like how we divide domestic labour and what's happened in this very uh, gendered recession that we've entered. Yeah, I, I thought uh, Annabelle's piece was really interesting and ties into a lot of the work she's been doing over the last few years and even the recent um, article she wrote in the Herald about um, in response to the, the, you know, sort of Twitter furor around the budget um, I wondered if you were across that and had any thoughts on how that ties into this this overall project. Um, oh, I, I think um, uh, <laughs> the, the the most recent budget uh, is absolutely gendered. There's a huge blind spot in there. Uh, most of the job creation measures um, support male-dominated sectors of the workforce. We could have balanced that out. The government should have balanced that out by greater investment in caring jobs. And um, aged care is just such a fantastic example of this. We have a crisis in our aged care system right now. We've got more than 100,000 people on a waiting list for home care packages. They've been assessed as needing home care. That you know, they've gone through all the tests. It's been determined that they need assistance in their homes 
and they're going to be waiting months, possibly years, for that assistance to happen. Why on earth would we not be supporting jobs, looking after people in their own homes, keeping them out of nursing homes, in an environment that's familiar to them, where they want to be, where they want to stay, uh, why on earth we wouldn't be supporting jobs looking after people on the home care waiting list is beyond me. And I think um, I think that's a real insight into how gendered the budget is because the government doesn't even get that this is that there's an oversight here. They've spent a trillion dollars, uh, or they're you know racking up a trillion dollars worth of debt. And their response to Labor's investment uh, in uh, cheaper childcare is that we can't afford it. I mean, that that is the definition of gender blindness in budgeting. Yeah, I found it um, quite fascinating and sort of eye-opening that the, the the charts that were um, in. Professor Cooper's chapter, and again in that that article that uh, Annabel Crabb wrote recently about the sort of disproportionate effect that this particular recession is going to have on work that is dominated by women as opposed to men. Yeah, um, it's just it's a very different type of this pandemic is is it's it's a, affecting the economy in a completely different way to other other recessions. A hundred percent. Like so many of the areas where the job losses have been worst are areas uh, that have a predominantly female workforce. Hospitality and tourism is one example, but there are many. Uh, and then the budget response to this is to give uh, tax cuts that predominantly flow to high income earners that predominantly benefit men, whereas low income earners get so high-income earners, predominantly men, get a permanent large tax cut. Low-income earners get a temporary one-off tax offset that's much smaller and disappears after a year. And if you're on welfare, um, you're, you're even worse off. We had an acknowledgement during the pandemic that, uh, that unemployment benefits were completely inadequate. $40 a day is not enough to live on. It traps you in poverty. You can't even apply for new jobs if you can't afford the the train ticket to get to the interview or a fresh shirt to wear you know if you get to the interview it, this is um th there is the gender inequality there is the uh, vast economic inequality that is being exacerbated by the government's response this book really is about showing a different way of dealing with that that does invest in jobs in the care economy and makes sure that they are permanent, good quality jobs with training and career paths. Because it's not just about the number of jobs, it's also we can't have security in our economy, we can't return confidence to the economy if people don't know if they've got a job next week, if they're, you know, the, the equivalent to the historical... Um, you know, Great Depression days of wharfies lining up on the Hungry Mile, which is in my electorate, uh, you know, waiting to be selected for a day's work. The equivalent of that is the gig economy that ha has developed in recent years in Australia. Very convenient for some consumers. Fine if it's just a, an additional income for you. But if you're relying on that insecure income, people can't get a loan, they 
you know, can't get a mortgage, they can't put down roots, they don't know what they're going to be earning from week to week, they don't know uh, when they're going to be thrown into poverty if they're injured at work or lose their job. That is not a recipe for confidence and aggregate demand in our economy. It's it's a recipe for insecurity uh, and a recipe um, for a, a slower economic recovery. It's a recipe for a longer, deeper recession, that sort of insecurity at work. Yeah, and it seems to reflect this sort of misconception that I think is sort of deep in Australia's culture somehow, that, um, that building jobs means building building infrastructure projects that are huge construction projects and that that's what a job is. When they advertise, uh, you know, job building, it's people in hard hats and high vis and not people in nurses' uniforms or carers of, of aged care or service jobs, which is actually the areas where that have been hit hardest and the areas that are growing faster in terms of jobs. It just seems to be a mismatch in the way that we think about jobs. Yeah, um, and I think the important thing is we need both. And at the moment, we've got a budget that does one half of that equation, but not the other half. I, I'm mm. all for building housing, for example. I was the housing minister during the global financial crisis, and we built um, 21,600 new public housing homes. We upgraded 80,000. It's fantastic. That creates jobs in every community across Australia. I, I wouldn't, I wish we were doing more of that in this budget, but there's the other part of the economy that is being ignored at the moment, which is a great area for investment and a great area to grow jobs. And, you know, like I say, aged care is one fantastic example of that. Mm. Another area that I think is really, um, that have been particularly badly hit by the pandemic is young people. And you say at the beginning in your introduction that um, research into the effects of previous pandemics across 142 countries so that young people can lose trust in political processes for decades after exposure. Um, I, I feel that really keenly myself, even though I'm not no longer a young person. <laughs> um, do you, is that something you worry about? Uh, first of all, you're definitely young because it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can cut that bit out. Um, <laughs> no, no, leave it in. <laughs> look, I, I am really profoundly worried about people coming of age at this time. I, I, I was finishing uni at the time of the 1990s recession and I remember how frightening it was to think, you know, I've studied four years for this degree and I, I don't know if I'm going to get a job from it and I, I don't know if I'm going to get a job at all. It's, it is a terrible thing to be moving into adulthood with that insecurity. And I think there would be so many young people today who, well, if you're in year 12, you've had the year from hell, you've had all your learning interrupted, the exams, are they on, are they off? The insecurity that goes on top of what is a very stressful year, that that is combined with the knowledge that there's 140,000 fewer apprentices today than when this government was elected. Uh, TAFE has had massive funding cuts and universities are, are actually, you know, harder and more expensive to get into uh, than they have been um, for many, many years. 
what is there? I mean, for young people, there's no gap year. There's no entry-level jobs to go and do to earn a bit of money so you can go travelling because there's also no travelling. Um, it's harder and more expensive to get an education. The unemployment queues are growing. There's a, a bunch of experienced um, older workers that employers can choose from. It is a worrying time for young people and we, we have a responsibility uh, as adults to, um, to, to give pathways to hope for young people. And that obviously is around employment and education, but it is also about really uh, a lot of other issues that young people are concerned about, um, like the, a clean energy future for Australia. And that's why I wanted to have the Roscano chapter in there as well, because we, you know, it's no good just focusing on the problems. We actually have to lay out what some of the solutions are. So there are chapters in there about employment and education, um, both university and vocational education. But we kind of need to answer the next question as well, which is where are the jobs coming from? Um, there's a terrific chapter by Daniel Petrie in there about uh, how digital technologies are transforming the way we live and the way we work. Because um, that, that next question, you know, what kind of jobs are people going to be doing in a, in a year's time, five years' time, ten years' time? How do we get to that future? I think that's a, a really important thing to ask ourselves as a nation. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough time, but it d does feel, reading this, that there are solutions out there. I wondered, um, given that this whole book is full of solutions, but... Uh, ultimately, many of the contributors to the book are from your your own Labor Party, and you're not in power at the moment. Do you? And I can see that the same thing is happening overseas with progressive parties. Do you, are you concerned that the progressive agenda that is sort of warranted by the response to the pandemic will just be rejected out of hand for being um, because it's too closely aligned with um, partisan politics? It's a really interesting question, and uh, I, I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, I, I think we'll get an insight into, into that from the results of the American election, which so many Australians are watching so closely, because um, their politics in the United States is a, is a much more polarised version of politics here, but there are these kind of essential questions like what is the role of government? Um, uh, you know, um, sh should we be uh, heading down the clean energy renewables pathway or are we, uh, are we sticking with things as they are? Um, you know, it, even in the, in the US, the question about um, how the health system operates is a is a very extreme sort of version of the debate here you know has our has our universal health system served us well i think um i mean obviously i'm biased but in in my view the pandemic has taught us that a lot of 
things that we assumed were the case have been proved beyond doubt. And, you know, universal access to healthcare, having a strong system like Medicare, I think has proved its worth beyond doubt at a time like this. Uh, having a strong safety net so that, and strong industrial relations arrangements so that people don't work when they're sick because they've got a safety net to rely on. That has proved its worth beyond doubt at a time like this. Um, I, I think actually the pandemic has made a strong case for progressive ideas and progressive values. And I, I don't, I mean, it may be controversial to say so, but I'm not, I think it's probably no coincidence that uh, some of the more autocratic countries have done less well during this time. Yeah, that's true. And it is, it, it is very interesting to consider that. Um, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very interesting, I don't think it's a question that can be easily answered. And I think you're right. We'll look to the American election as a leading indicator, at least to, to some extent. Um, I would love to keep talking to you about this book, but I know you're very busy and um, it's, it's a fascinating book. Uh, I feel like we've barely scraped the surface. It's, it's, there's just so much going on here and I really urge our listeners uh, and Booktopia's readers to have a have a look at this. It's a fantastic book. Um, Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me. It, it's such a pleasure, Joel. Thank you very much for, for interviewing me. Um, I really hope people uh, enjoy the book. It, I think it's the beginning of a conversation that the nation needs to have. Absolutely. And you can buy Upturn uh, from your local bookshop or from booktopia.com.au. It's edited by Tanya Lipsack. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au